Hello, I'm Natasha Froze, and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask a few of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces. Coming up, we have Mary Wakefield on why she thinks the NHS is broken, Jenny McCartney on productivity gurus, and Robert Gore Langton on Richard Burton's botched Hamlet. First up, Mary Wakefield. I was having tea with my neighbour in her second floor flat when a man, a stranger, appeared in the room. This is quite a regular occurrence around at Alice's. She's deaf and she can't really walk so any number of agency staff have access to her front door key. They materialise wearing gloves and usually a face mask. And because Alice relies on lip reading, she hasn't a clue what they're about to do to her. Is it bath time? Injection time? Uh, It's fun to be housebound and old. This time, the man had a clipboard, which he consulted, then said, we're going to hospital. Alice turned to me. What did he say? Over the years, she and I have worked out a decent way of communicating, mostly through eyebrow raises. What's the world coming to? And shrugs. What can you do? This was not in our repertoire. So I turned to the man and asked, going to hospital, what for? He looked at the clipboard again. She has an outpatient appointment. But how is she getting there? I asked him. Ambulance. He gestured to the window and sure enough, there was one parked in the street below. Alice had fallen a few months before and broken her hip. So the idea of a checkup made sense, but not much else did. How will you get her down the stairs? I asked. The man looked at Alice's setup: Bed, commode, armchair, all side by side with a zimmer in front. Then he looked at Alice, who isn't fat, but isn't bird-like either. And we were quiet for a moment, considering those two flights of stairs. Then Alice, who'd picked up the gist, began the painful process of leaning forward, gripping the zimmer and tipping the weight onto her swollen feet. I'll try, though this is how I broke my hip in the first place, you know. Stop, said the man. Stop. We'll reschedule. We need a stretcher and two people. Alice's file needs updating. He shook his head. It should say she's immobile and deaf. What does her file say? I asked, peering over his shoulder. There was Alice's name and address on a piece of paper, and underneath that two words, immobile and deaf. We contemplated this, the man and I. So, what would you add to that? I asked him. Nothing really, he said, equally. Then why have you come alone? Cost-saving, said the man, and shook his head at the sorry state of the NHS. One man is cheaper than two. So, shall we add something to these notes so it doesn't happen again? The man looked horrified. I can't add anything to the notes. It's not my business. It's an automatic system. Well, can you tell the hospital to add something then? He looked at me as if there was some basic fract I wasn't grasping. This is an automatic system. It's an automatic appointment. I looked out of the window again and thought about all the octogenarians who might have fallen across London and might right now be lying on their own broken bones, waiting for an ambulance like this. The man was right. I wasn't grasping it. If you reschedule with these same notes, won't the same automatic system just trigger the same response? I asked. The man smiled, and something about the zen-like calm that had descended on him suggested that this wasn't his first time at the rodeo. Perhaps he'd even been to Alice's house before. She wouldn't necessarily remember. Perhaps it would go on like this until Alice died. An endless series of ambulances and an endless automatic rescheduling. 
I had the sudden vertiginous feeling that there might be ambulances all over London, idling in the streets, waiting for outpatients they could never pick up, and men with clipboards calmly popping in and popping out like cuckoos on a cuckoo clock. The government has, I read recently, spent £164,000 on a guide to inclusive communication to ensure that clinicians ask patients their pronouns in exactly the right tone of voice for fear of triggering offence. At the time, I wondered how on earth cash-strapped NHS management justified the spending when nurses were striking and patients dying for want of care. Now I see that when the whole system is failing, when various parts of the service just don't connect anymore, nitpicking and nagging is all you can do. Why not have a meeting, print more posters, obsess on progressive protocol to give yourself the illusion of control while the whole ship sinks? West Streeting described the health service recently as still salvageable. Now, it's quite something to hear the Labour Shadow Health Secretary so downbeat about our NHS. But I think Wes is wrong. The man, by now, was sidling out of the door. So I had one last crack at fixing this tiny broken link in the system. Can anyone add to Alice's notes? I asked him. Who should I tell so that we get two men and a stretcher next time? Maybe her GP. The man said this gently, sorrowfully, as if there was no reason for me to meddle, and as if the process was all taking place exactly as it should. He needn't have worried. I've tried to call Alice's GP before. They never pick up. When he was gone, I turned to Alice. Mistake. It was all a mistake, I mouthed. Don't worry, I'll make tea. Uh, by the way, your hip, the one they operated on, does it hurt at all? It's all right said Alice. There's bits of me that are worse. Well, there's your outpatient appointment, Alice. This was on Sunday, and shortly afterwards the government tested its emergency alarm and the air was full of shrieking, and I had to resist the impulse to smash my phone to make it stop. Not because a nationwide alarm is a bad idea. I'm sure it works very nicely in countries that suffer from storms or tsunamis. But because of the impression it seemed to give of an efficient government which keeps its citizens so safe and well that all it has left to do is fine-tune the emergency protocol. That was Mary Wakefield. Next, Jenny McCartney. I was making my way slowly through one of my dismally prosaic little to-do lists, pay the water bill, wash hair, etc., when the voice of the journalist Helen Lewis came on Radio 4 talking about productivity. It's the holy grail of modern life, apparently, and we're now constantly looking for charismatic individuals to help us maximise it. Her writer friend Julian Simpson is obsessed with the topic, she said, even though he disarmingly admitted what some of us may quickly have suspected, that my interest in productivity manifests itself when I need to be doing something else. My ears pricked up, however, when Simpson named one of the leading productivity gurus, as James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. This book is a vigorous guide to how small, oft-repeated actions can eventually result in what Clear calls the compound interest of self-improvement. It has sold more than 9 million copies worldwide, including to me. For just as the alcoholic daydreams of sobriety, I recall imagining that Atomic Habits might render me more energetic and orderly. Might I perhaps even be able to inspire junior family members with my new regime? In theory, much of his advice seems solid enough. If you want to remember to send more thank you notes, he says, 
keep stationary on your desk. When you've finished your dinner, stick your plate straight into the dishwasher. So far, so good. Yet it turns out that Claire, who has more than 870,000 Twitter followers, is just the daddy of a pack of other productivity gurus, each frantically advising their followers on how to wring more out of their days. One is called Ali Abdal, a genial former NHS doctor who has discovered he can make significantly more cash with his YouTube channel, which boasts 4.15 million subscribers. A large chunk of his income derives from running courses online, which teach other people also to become successful YouTubers. Abdal talks very quickly, although not quite as fast as his former mentee, the glamorous young medical student, artist and productivity coach Elizabeth Phillips. There are so many different versions of myself, Phillips told us, listing her numerous roles at breakneck speed. Daringly, she kicked against atomic habits to advocate organised chaos, which seemingly involves concentrating on things only when she's really motivated. I was starting to feel exhausted by this crowing about production, especially when the chief product is more advice on productivity. So it came as something of a relief when the author Oliver Berkman suggested abandoning the entire notion of a perfected time management system. Surely steeping oneself in these burgeoning books and videos is the modern equivalent of buying shiny folders from Ryman and writing tax stuff or revision on them in curly capitals. They might help get you in the mood, but we shouldn't mistake them for actually doing the work. In the kingdom of self-improvement, however, this territory looks benign when set next to the sinister thickets of the rogue life coaching business exposed in Katrin Nye's fascinating podcast, A Very British Cult. The story opened with Jeff Lee Jones, who described how he had recently poured more than £130,000 into membership of Lighthouse, an organisation that promised to help people transform their lives and realise their goals. Jeff's main ambition was to mount a Shackleton-style expedition to the South Pole, for which he decided he needed to strengthen his mental resilience. His gateway to Lighthouse was through an enjoyable online book group, which met every week to study Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There, he built up a strong rapport with the host, Jay Singh, who introduced him to the life coaching group run by Paul Waugh, a physically imposing man in his late 50s who was prone to outbreaks of deep laughter and later rage. At first, the group seemed encouraging. Then it gradually got nuttier and nastier, immersing Jeff in a gruelling discipline programme of endless online conversations with Waugh and others, all scrupulously recorded. Lighthouse mentors tried to isolate Jeff from his family and commendably loyal girlfriend Dawn, while squeezing him for more payments towards membership and investments. Jeff remortgaged, then sold his house. The goal of the South Pole trip drifted ever further away, replaced by his growing entanglement in the weirdly disorienting lighthouse mechanism. Eventually, Jeff broke free, but war could turn threatening and intimately cruel when challenged by members. He's heard here haranguing one female survivor of sexual abuse that she is a cynical little old witch. Naya's careful not to damn the entire booming life coaching industry, which currently numbers about 100,000 practitioners in its UK ranks alone. 
A jolly Irish coach called Mark Fennell keeps emphasising how deeply unethical Lighthouse's methods were. Yet this podcast does reveal the potential for abuse when charlatans gain access to people's yearnings for self-betterment and fashion an instrument of torment from their dreams. That was Jenny McCartney. And finally, Robert Gorlangton. The story goes that while shooting the film Beckett, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole tossed a coin. They both wanted to play Hamlet and they both wanted to be directed on stage by either Laurence Olivier or John Gielgud. O'Toole got Olivier, Burton got Gielgud. Both productions, Booze Trenched Affairs, went ahead, but the Hamlet that became a show business legend was Burton's doomed dame. Burton was a fan of Gielgud's. He had played Hamlet a decade before, and in it he copied Gielgud's word elongation in a dream of passion. Gielgud, for his part, was keen to stage something for the 1964 Shakespeare Quarter Centenary and liked the poetic dark pessimism of the starry Welshman. As director, he decided that his brilliant new concept for Hamlet was no concept. No tights, good move, Burton hated them. No decor, nothing. It was to be staged to look as if it was the last run-through before the dress rehearsal. The largely American cast was invited to wear anything. Pyjamas and bikinis were ruled out, but otherwise it was come as you like. The show opened on Broadway at the Lunt Fontaine Theatre after previewing in Canada. The police closed off roads, the kettle fans broke free and chased the star's limo. What became known as the Liz and Dick show thoroughly upstaged the play. The couple were at peak fame, having recently filmed Cleopatra, an insane epic of exceeded budgets, booze, lawsuits, adultery and diamond shopping. Taylor famously had a donkey's appetite for carrots. The pair tied the knot. It was her fifth marriage during the run. When Burton said Hamlet's Act Three line, I say we will have no more marriages, he got a great round of applause. The fraught botch production of Hamlet is now the subject of a new play at the National Theatre called The Motif and the Cue, taken from Hamlet's line about the player King. What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? Starring Mark Gattis as Gilgood, Johnny Flynn as Burton and Tuppence Middleton as Taylor. It is directed by Hollywood maestro Sam Mendes. Gilgood turned 60 during the original project and was the epitome of old school acting. His mellifluous voice, shimmering with emotion and delivered with what one critic called a parsonical quiver, was famous. Burton's voice, a spine-tingling poetic rumble of shifting coal slag, was more rugged, more sixties and no less adored. Gilgut had encouraged Burton's first Hamlet in the 1950s and he was a bit unhappy about it. In one of his famous gaffes, he called at his dressing room as Burton was getting out of costume and said, Shall I come back when you're better? Oh, oh I mean ready. For source material about the show, Jack Thorne has used verbatim conversation from the rehearsals, secretly recorded with a tape machine smuggled in a briefcase, von Stauffenberg style, by the actor Richard L. Stern, playing a bit part, who typed up Gilgood and Burton's long private meeting and later produced a book based on their exchanges. William Redfield, the actor playing Gildenstern, also published a book, Letters from an Actor, 
consisting of incisive, bitchy epistles about the awkward rehearsal process. It seems part of the problem was that Gilgood knew by heart every single line of the play, thus unsettling the cast. Burton was, of course, sloshed from beginning to end. A famous Burton cocktail recipe of the day was, first take your 21 tequilas. Liz Taylor, who had become a fond stage groupie, nursed him tenderly, but was not always great for his morale, saying teasing things to the cast, such as, does the burnt-out Welshman know his lines? He didn't. Gilgood was prone to saying what he really thought by accidentally putting his foot in it. Really splendid tonight, Richard. The entire section we spoke of, from to be or not to be, through to the nunnery scene, was excellent, excellent. I almost liked it. Burton, an actor perhaps temperamentally unsuited to the part of the dithering Dane, listened very politely but had his own views. John dear, you are in love with pronouns, but I am not. Thorne's play features Janie Dee, perhaps the most experienced member of the cast. She is playing Eileen Hurley, an actress of Glaswegian origin, who was cast as Hamlet's mother Gertrude, despite being 11 years older than Olivier. Olivia had phoned her, saying, Eileen, we're going to do this with Freud's Oedipal Complex in mind. And she said, oh, what a good idea, Larry. Then she hung up, called a friend and asked, what's an Oedipal Complex? When she played the part again, Gilgood privately described her and the man playing Claudius as looking like an ex-croupier from Monte Carlo who has eloped with a fat landlady. Eileen Hurley is somebody we should know about, argues Janie D. Yes, Eileen had already paid Gertrude. She'd been rightly much praised for the part and her experience of working with Olivier was very good. She didn't really need to do it again. Any problems between Burton and Gilgood are really painful to her in our play. She wants to make sure nobody gets above themselves. We get to see for the first time what goes on in the rehearsal room and of course there's lots of conflict, but I can't reveal more. Did she ever meet Gilgood or Burton? No, but my mother sat on the stairs at home after seeing Burton in Coriolanus and wept because she knew she would never marry him. I've watched every interview with Burton I can and it was just such a shame that he died at 58. You'll totally see why in the play. And given the choice, would she prefer to have dinner with Gilgood or Burton? Oh, Burton, I'm with my mum on that score, she beams. Gilgood learned to loathe the clamouring crowds that undermined, as he saw it, the play itself. You might think that Gilgood, who represented the most elitist end of the English stage, would have raised American hackles. But it turns out he was much loved by the method school of mumblers. Marlon Brando was Mark Antony, Burton turned the part down, in the film he and Gilgood did together of Julius Caesar, and Gilgood helped him out with his speeches. The young beat-era Brando in turn loved Gilgood's brand of elegant reserve, announcing that cat is down. Lee Strasberg, one of the great gurus of the method, had been to see his Hamlet in the 30s and was mesmerised by his capacity to utterly inhabit Hamlet's mind. When Gilgood speaks the verse, I can hear Shakespeare thinking, he declared. The Burton Hamlet wasn't overburdened with thought, however, nor was it helped by Gilgood's chronic indecision and his odd suggestions. Try wearing a hat, was one note he gave an actor desperate for help. The show on Broadway, however, made a fortune, probably the most profitable Shakespeare ever staged. Gilgood, who voiced the ghost for the show, 
summed up Burton as shrewd, generous, intelligent and cooperative. I grew very fond of him. But he had privately admitted he was no Hamlet, as he never had the princely bearing required. But he privately admitted that he was no Hamlet, as he had never had the princely bearing required. The crowds didn't agree. When Gilgood played the part, he got 20 curtain calls a night and invariably missed his bus home. Burton, however, staggered through 138 performances, narrowly breaking Gilgood's record to the latter's mild upset. Burton's Hamlet was an artistic flop that utterly triumphed. That was Robert Golankton. If you enjoyed the episode, then why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Feroz, and do join us again next week.